Don't look now, but it's another bonus episode of Combing the Stacks. We call these bonus episodes Cleaning the Attic, and today, we'll keep going deep into the archives for two hidden gems. The first album covered is self-titled debut of The Animals, and we'll follow it up with the 1966 cult classic Black Monk Time by The Monks. Josh is still on vacation for a day or two longer, so it's the dynamic duo of John and Matt navigating the ship one more time. The Combing the Stacks podcast from an un- undisclosed location, undisclosed time. This is a bonus episode that Matt and I are helming uh, with Josh still on vacation, uh, still uh, enjoying his birthday two-week period. When this will post as a bonus episode, we don't know. So when you're listening to this, whether it be a couple weeks later, six months later, a year later, we welcome you. Uh, to July 22nd, 2020. So I guess it is a disclosed time now. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Um, for the second uh, uh, time here, we're officially, I guess, cleaning the attic, right? For the bonus we, episodes. We, actually, for the third time cleaning the attic, Matt, you, may, you might have forgotten about I don't think we. I don't think we had the name, though, the first one. I think we, we didn't officially call it at that time, so... Yes, it was, it was sort of just bonus episode at the time, but then we've refined it to be extra special. Right, exactly. So I am looking forward to this because while we started with some pretty mainstream choices for our first one, and then in the second one went into some that tied in a little bit more with areas of interest, for the third, we went totally off the charts and picked some, some bands and some albums that we thought would facilitate some, some great discussion. So Matt, why don't you tell us what you're doing tonight because you're going to actually present second. Yeah, so I'm covering a band called The Monks which it, there's a lot of stuff going on with them, which is one of the reasons, the, probably the main reason I chose them. But it's a, it's a fascinating band from the 60s, and they did not make the top 100 list. They were close. They came in at 110 with their one and only album, Black Monk Time. Um, but I thought this would be a great time to talk about that because there's all kinds of interesting stuff going on with, with them that, that are worth mentioning for sure in a, in a podcast like this. And yes, we are going deep, deep into the attic for that one, which I really uh, am <laughs> going, to look, going to look forward to. And uh, I'm going to be covering the actually not the most well-known, but the first Animals album. And this is the Animals, the original version, not the later version that was Eric Burden and the Animals. And 
This one is sort of a shout out to my father. This was my father's first favorite band as a kid when he was eight years old. And uh, when he found out that I was doing a podcast and we were starting in the 60s, he did ask me when we were going to be covering the animals and what I thought of them. And I told him, unfortunately, they did not make the best ever albums top 100 countdown, which he was both outraged and disappointed about. But (laughs) now, though, that we're cleaning the stacks, this one uh, will be to some degree a dedication to my my dad, who has in many ways pointed me uh, into the various different types of music that I've listened to. So thanks, dad. Influences uh, are influencers are important and worth mentioning, even outside of just the bands, people in our lives who introduce us to stuff uh, can go a long way for sure. So it's, it's worth mentioning for for, yeah, for sure. No doubt. And uh, I think in, in terms of a smooth transition, the animals were also incredibly influential to many, many artists. And before we get into the bio a little bit, let me uh, pull a couple quotes about the animals, Matt, if you'll so indulge me, Uh, because I did think it was interesting. Uh, One of your favorite bands, Genesis, Tony Banks of Genesis. Oh, yeah. Keyboardist was highly influenced by the first keyboardist of the animals who we're going to talk about quite a bit for other reasons. Uh, But he said that, that much of his work initially started with Alan Price's keyboard playing. So he was interesting there. Yep. Um, I did not know that Bob Dylan, someone we've covered has said that mm-hmm. when he heard the animals uh, version of house of the rising sun, that it was the track that made him think about going electric. And <laughs> unlike many of the stories that kind of are thought of as apocryphal or just not real, this one has actually been confirmed because um, Bob Dylan did record that song in 1962 before them, but he heard that and thought, I might want to go electric after that. Yeah. So that's a pretty big piece of uh, music trivia right there. Yeah. And Bruce Springsteen, who is a noted Animals fan, and much like my father, is a scion of New Jersey. Uh, he said that about the Animals, he said, that's every song I've ever written. That's Born to Run, Born in the USA, everything I've done over the last 40 years, including all the new ones. They struck me so deep. It was the first time I thought I heard something come across the radio that mirrored my home life in my childhood. And he also, he uh, even said that darkness on the edge of town was basically an, an album that every song was influenced by the animals. So right off the bat, there's three pretty well-known artists talking about the, the love of the animals and the effect they had on them. What are your John, thoughts? If I, John, if I didn't know any better, I would have, I would say that you've cherry picked those three artists as, cause they're pretty much three of my favorites. I could probably say that they would encapsulate three of my top 10, um, oh, I mean, so- you know me all too well, Matt, because there are other people <laughs> that, uh, that have said that, that the animals were influential. In fact, they're largely considered the second most influential uh, British invasion band with a blues, rhythm and blues take on things, along with the Stones. Right. And many people think that along with the Beatles and the Kinks, they sort of represent the big four in terms of bands that came over. But they probably actually get talked about less than the other four, I would think. Uh, but they're no less influential so but yes i i specifically picked three artists that i know resonate deeply with matt right there to try to build the case <laughs> well so that's a ready? good start that's a good there, start there we go so do we want to dig a tiny bit into the animals here for a little bit of context because we don't have to go too long because this is their first album uh so you know we'll give maybe a little bit of background afterwards but uh from the time that they uh they're signed until the time they released this album is not very long at all So the basics on the animals, they were a band that was founded in Newcastle, England, 
and then moved to London in 1964, basically right as Beatlemania was going on. Uh, now, one thing that uh, is going to come up pretty quickly when you listen to the animals, even though they're in that British invasion period, is they are more Rolling Stones than they are uh, Beatles or Kinks. Uh, in the sense that, as I talked about earlier, they're going to take the blues songs, the covers, basically the template that the Beatles and the Stones were using at this time. And they were going to take it in a specifically bluesy direction. As, as someone said in, in the research I did, they're very much the B of the R&B in terms of their take. And uh, that's a little bit different than the Beatles. And, and you definitely can see on this album, and I don't want to get into it too much, I'm sure Matt will have a lot to say, but we covered with the Beatles from 1963, and they were doing a lot of the same material in terms of the artists they were covering. But man, the, the animals did it differently than the Beatles. Would you not say, Matt? Yeah, definitely. The blues, the bluesy element is, is certainly there much more so than what the Beatles were doing. Gotcha. Uh, the original lineup, probably the most well-known member of the animals and the only one who was in both versions of it uh, was Eric Burden, who was the pretty well, pretty easy to recognize vocalist uh, of the group. Uh, Alan Price, who only lasted till 1965, and boy, it's quite a story as to why that happened. He's on the organ and the keys. John Steele's on the drums. He would be there till 1966 when he would leave the band. Uh, Brian Chaz, excuse me, 1965, I apologize. Uh, Brian Chandler is on the bass, and Hilton Valentine is on the guitar. And both Hilton of them would- Valentine? Hilton Valentine. Another what a great name. Fantastic 60s names that would be like out of almost famous, you know what I mean? Or is something. that his birth name? Or is that that, that, that sounds as made far up? As I know, it is his birth name. And unlike Mr. Brian Chandler, who uh, went by Chaz and had a nickname, I did not see any shorthand for Hilton Valentine. So it appears, and certainly anyone listening who may know any differently. Uh, can let me know, but it appears that was the birth name. And man, if you're going to have a guitarist, Hilton Valentine, yeah, about as good as it gets, right? It's Pops like the, to his parents, man. That's a, that's a great name. Yeah, it's it's, it's sort of like in Boogie Nights, in Dirk Diggler is, is the perfect <laughs> porn name. You know, Hilton Valentine's kind of like the perfect lead guitarist name. Anyway, right up there with Ace Freely, I think another <laughs> a crazy guitarist name. You know, so uh, but anyway, so that is the the initial band. Uh, three of the members, Burden, Chandler, and Valentine, would be there throughout what's affectionately known as Animals 1 before Animals 2. That's the, the Eric Burden and the Animals uh, version of it came about. Like I said, Alan Price would leave um, the earliest, uh, and the story of him leaving is a big piece of the band's history, and John Steele would be there till 1965. So they were a successful live band uh, when they moved to London, and they got signed pretty quickly. Uh, they signed with Columbia. Uh, they released a a single only a couple months after doing that called baby let me follow you down it got changed into baby let me take you home uh i'm not sure why because it seems no less uh scandalous either way you know baby let me follow you down or baby let me take you home both are kind of talking about the same thing but uh it was changed and this was followed by one of their two most well-known tracks uh house of the rising sun now matt how familiar were you with the animals heading into this uh listen well, certainly with the House of the Rising Sun, and that's been a song that I've liked for many, many years. Eric Burden's voice on that is is just killer, right? The way he's just belting out, um, you know, and his kind of raspy, you know, uh, his voice. It's I've always liked that. Um, so that's been a, and I remember when I first heard that years ago, you know, thinking that's a band that I would like to learn more about because it's so great. Um, and I never really did. I, I never really followed, well, you know, through with that. 
it's you know before the age of spotify so i didn't you know i never went out and bought an album right and never so got to that think, point why do you think out of curiosity matt that you followed the beatles down the rabbit hole but not yep. the animals uh well probably because the beatles were more on the present in my life and they were okay. you know a, a band that i heard from various members of my family and you know it was just way more on my radar so um yeah. And that's probably just what happened there, but no, yeah, nobody came up to me in my, you know, in high school or anything really touting the animals and you need to listen to this record. So that was probably a big reason for it. Um, but I did, I did know the house of the rising sun, but not a whole lot. I, I somewhat familiar with, with Eric burden. Um, you got to get out of this place. You probably stumbled across that at some place at some yes, point. Yes. You? Oh yeah. yes. I did know that song. Right. I forgot about that. Yep. And there's probably other songs that I, that I knew too, but it's, it's, they've never been a band that has been, you know, fully on my radar or anyone, a band that I really knew a whole lot about. So, um, so it was cool. I liked, I liked kind of getting to know this, uh, this yeah. record. Well, and one thing to know is that there are two versions of this album. There's the U S version, which came out first and then the UK version. Uh, only seven tracks are shared. So there's considerable difference between mm. the US and the UK albums. You know, most of the time, the albums are similar when record labels did that, especially during this time period. There are examples in history that the clash comes to mind of, you know, a fair amount of differences between the US and the UK version. But this was almost two different albums. So the version on Spotify that I think both of us worked off of is the US version and features House of the Rising Sun. The UK uh, version actually did not have that on it. Um, wow. and, it's, and the UK version did not have blue feeling on it as well, which became sort of like a holy grail type of deal because the US version was not easy to get in England from everything I read. So there were a lot of people combing the stack, so to speak, um, in England for the US version because that version of blue feeling was considered to be a white whale for fans of, of and, the animals. Yeah. yeah. And that goes back to what we were talking about with meet the, with, with the Beatles and meet the Beatles, you know, how they mm -hmm. released one, you know, kind of version on in the UK and then another one in the U S it's or interesting. The Stones as well did that quite a bit. Yeah. Well, and probably a lot of bands did it too. Um, and I think we touched upon this a little bit in that episode we talked about with the Beatles, you know, not being sure exactly how, why those decisions were made, like you, how you keep the house of the rising sun off of this, album i i it, i it would be interesting to know the reasoning behind that and i don't know if you know that if or if there's any details on it but um or if, if that's readily available information but i find that fascinating and i also find it interesting that this is a british band and they released the album in the u.s before yep. they did the uk which is the opposite of what the beatles did so again Wait. why is that what were they why well, I, I take a guess on the the u.s uk one and that's because in 1964 when this album was released, the Beatles were going to America and were, it was right during the period, right? Where Beatlemania was hitting America. Well, the Beatles and, went to America in, in, in April of 64, and this was released in September of 64, if I'm not mistaken. So and that, that's my guess is that they saw the, the evidence, you know, the United States is larger than Great Britain. And I'm thinking yeah. that maybe they thought strike while the iron is hot is, mm -hmm. is what my guess is on that. And so, um, yeah. yeah, that would make sense. That would make sense. Yeah. And so I don't know that for sure, but that's the only thing I can think of uh, in terms of that. Now, much like many of these things, House of the Rising Sun did become available later on UK versions of it once the song was uh, went on to be a hit. 
And so it was only the earliest versions of it that did not have it on it um, in terms of the research that I did. So, so it wasn't a long-term decision like other things. They reprinted it and added uh, stuff along with it. So we've done a lot of bio. There's, there's a lot more interesting about the bio, which I'll try to weave in. But I kind of want to go over before I get into more bio, Matt, and I kind of yeah. want to start into the review a little bit. What did you think of this album? Because this is, this is a formative album. It is not considered their greatest piece of work. And some people don't feel that this is as strong as Eric Burden and the Animals, but it is considered an incredibly influential album. And when I say not considered greatest, doesn't mean it's not considered a good album. It's just not, you know, the, the big album that you, that you um, glam, glam onto uh, from the Animals. But uh, it, it's the first, and it definitely represents a huge piece of the British invasion. What are your thoughts? So my initial thought listening to this, like I said, I knew House of the Rising Sun, but I didn't know any other songs of the versions of the songs that they did on this album uh, when I first listened to it. I was surprised at, well, initially I was thinking, oh, okay, well, I knew the second track, The Girl Can't Help It, is a cover, right? Um, yep. In I fact, knew, every song on this is a cover with the exception of one song. Yep. What's that song? What's so it's it's interesting. The song is, the song that is uh, uh, not a cover is actually on the UK version of it, I'm Crying. Okay. On this one, every song is a cover, that's, yes. Okay, so that's yep. where I was going because I was surprised, you know, of the songs that um, it's at the right time. That was a song that I knew from, mm -hmm. you know, well, the Cosby show and, uh, and Ray, <laughs> that's what first came to my mind. That, that iconic scene in the Cosby show where they're all wow, singing yeah. the song. Mm -hmm. um, but I knew that Ray, I think Ray Charles did a version of that yep. as well. And so I was just surprised early on at doing a cold listen that there were so many covers. And then as I read later on, I'm like, geez, every song is a cover. Yep. So I was surprised at that. And a little disappointed, um, you know, I, I, I think that the covers on here are great um, for the most part. I, I, I did like the album and it's just a, like you said, John, it's straight up blues. You know, most of these songs I could easily just, you know, substitute these guys for the stones and, the, and I could see them doing the same type of thing. Exactly. So I was really? just you say exactly, huh? Because to me, while they're both coming at it from that r&b and especially blues approach they're very different sounding well i think I, I mean exactly in terms of the overall sound i could easily see the stones doing that song in a very similar way not every song there was a couple that 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 i felt when as i listened to it more i'm like yeah i could totally see the stones doing this um but I was, yeah, I guess that was my main takeaway initially was being surprised that they were all covers and then just wondering if this was something that they would continue with or if they started branching out and becoming, you know, was, more song, songwriting uh, themselves. It was not. And it's, it's we talked about how the bio is going to weave itself in, Matt. And here, here's the first example where that's going to happen. So long story short, in May of 1965, Alan Price the keyboardist who, when you listen to this album, gives the group a distinctive sound, which mm -hmm. we'll talk about in a second, I'm sure. Uh, but he left the band, and at the time, they said it was a fear of flying, which is why he left the band, which seems to be something that comes up quite a bit in these 60s it, bands. Like, like Gene someone, Clark yep. and the Birds. Exactly, exactly. Gene Clark and the Birds, same exact thing. Uh, and obviously, flying in the 60s, I'm sure, was a very different uh, endeavor on, on all fronts. You know, when you think about flying in the 60s, right? There, Pan Am, always, routine... those commercials of Pan Am, that always looked like a nice airline. It was, I was, well, I'm kind of bummed they went out of business. I always think it more of like, you know, 
how many times you'd read about planes being hijacked and then they just say ride with it, you know what I mean? Into <laughs> different stuff and no security. So, you know, and obviously there were, it was, I think it was a little more, you take it in, take, take your safety into your hands a little bit in the sixties, right? You know, the flying experience compared to, to 2020, right? So I could see how someone, especially if they were having to, you know, cross the Atlantic multiple times might be a little bit trepidatious, but in right. this case, unlike uh, Gene Clark, who pretty much everybody verifies it was, was a real a real fear um there a lot of things say that that was sort of a cover reason for why he left and here is why because when the the uh track uh we've got to get out of this place was released um alan price left right at the height of when the band was you know at one of their most successful points and what was found out was that for house of the rising sun the album could only fit one person as the person who arranged the track so instead of it being a group arrangement or even just an arrangement based on who wrote the song you know thinking of like you know lennon mccartney Mm -hmm. that type thing instead they just picked one person's name to put on it and in this case it was alan price who also not coincidentally had a background as an accountant and in finance to say that this caused uh consternation (laughs) between the group since he reaped pretty much all of the the royalties from this song and the animals basically broke up because they were broke uh yeah okay keep that's so they all arranged it right so they so they they this so house of the rising sun is a long-standing song going back to the 40s right Mm -hmm. so it's been covered by a variety of people A, a long legend was that you know they they got it from bob dylan and while bob dylan did cover it in 1962 they don't consider that to be why they covered it. They, and, and actually Dylan and others agree. They, they think that their inspiration was Josh White, who was a blues singer in the forties and fifties. That was the version that influenced them to record this, which actually makes okay. sense when you look at what else they were covering on right. this album. He very much. Now it's also been covered by Bob Dylan and Nina Simone, but you know, it's, it's pretty clear that the ver- you know, the version by Josh White was what caused them to record this. Not well, by- and I would make, I'd probably make the argument. I'm just throwing this out there that this version, the animals version, is the probably the most well known version. Is, yeah. yeah, by by quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So and, uh, yeah. So, so they I- all arranged it, but they but because they couldn't fit it on the sleeve, Alan Alan Price gets it, but that means he also gets person- the royalties. Like so, they- so one person gets the basically the credit as the. Um, the arranger, right? The person who was, which in that case was the writer, right? You know, the, the royalties and stuff like that. That's why, you know, Lennon and McCartney fought for a bazillion years, right? You know, about like lead writing credits and some groups collectivize their writing like REM, right? Stuff like that. And others, you know, it's a big deal. You know what I mean? Who gets the the song? Right. I mean, we just covered the birds, right? And how many songs you got on the album and, and who wrote them was a big deal at all times with them. Um, but anyway, the main thing with this was that at the time, they kind of considered themselves young and with a collective ethos, right? Well, we'll figure it out. And, and a lot of bands start that way, right? Then it goes sideways. But in this case, they were still at that idealistic stage. But apparently, Alan Price was a little bit more um, with it savvy, <laughs> in terms of yeah. what savvy <laughs> of what could be. So especially uh, guitarist Valentine and Eric Burden were really resentful because the animals are notoriously a band that, you know, while a lot of bands lost their, their money, um, they were pretty grossly mismanaged to the point where they were left with nothing to the point where the band basically broke up because they couldn't make a living, despite the fact that they were this 
tremendous British invasion band. Um, and so fast forward later, the animals have a, the original animals have a, a brief 1968 uh, renewal that no one's really into. They come back in 1976 and randomly release an album that's actually well-received. It's one of the few albums of the band that kind of came back from the 60s and released a good album, unlike some of the other bands we've covered, right? Like yep. Beach Boys and Birds and stuff like that and, and Reunions. And then, um, and even the Monkees, uh, who we covered a couple episodes ago. And then they came back again in 1983 and did live shows. And I guess at that point, uh, Burden kind of goes up to Price and says, hey, listen, um, you know, we'll let bygones be bygones. Everything that's happened hasn't happened. But going forward, you know, can we collectivize that song? And it basically, Alan Price told to take a hike. And that's the <laughs> last That's God. the last time anybody in the band talked to Mr. Price. And he's been persona non grata no kidding. Uh, ever since. Yeah. So there's a... Uh, there's quite a bit of hard feelings right I mean, there. It would be imagine. one thing yep. if he actually was the main arranger, you know, or like the guy that took the helm, but if they really all did it, that's just, a, that's a jerk move. Yeah, it was, uh, it was something else. So, you know, we're not, we're not there. And yeah. I'd like to give Mr. Price the ability to talk for himself. Although it is hard to find his take because he has basically kept a policy of, of not commenting on it throughout the years. So, there so you don't think if, we, you think if we invited him on our podcast, he would turn us down? I think he might. Yeah, I, I know, though, that Eric Burden probably wouldn't because he is very vocal about the fact that he feels that he was screwed. Um, so so the, was the writing. So did they like I would assume that more writing came later on after, you know, so this. Yep. So that was a long depart into what happened was at the beginning of their career, they were having songs uh, written for them and, and basically picked for them would be probably a better way to call it. Okay. So a uh, very long story short, but it kind of goes into how music was done in the sixties. A lot of times, and, and actually it's kind of a similar story to what we covered with the monkeys, a couple bonus uh, mm. uh, tracks ago. So what happened was, and we're going back into the bio after I said we weren't going to, but Hey, you know what you asked? So we'll dig into it a little bit. So what happened was at the time uh, they were having, songs picked for them by a gentleman by the name of mickey most okay so mickey most was a guy who was sort of a record producer and uh he was working along with a uh sort of a a conglomerate i guess that would pick the songs they would record them and eric burden was chafing at this point and did not love having his tracks picked for them definitely wanted to have a little bit more of a say in terms of what's going on uh, so Mickey Most and this Brill building of songwriters that are well known um, and that worked with people like Herman's Hermits and, and Donovan, right? So they were, you know, working out of that as well, having songs picked. So Burden decides he wants to be more creative. 1965 comes and basically they end their association with Most. They end their association with Columbia Records. They head over to the American label MGM Records. They move to California and they begin working with Tom Wilson, who gives them considerably more artistic freedom. Gotcha. And then basically collect all of their hits from the previous time, release a best of album called The Best of the Animals, um, sells super well in the US. Um, but then by that point, the band is basically done. And Eric Burden released a solo album and then creates a whole new band, which becomes Eric Burden and the Animals. And that's a band that's well known, starting with the album Animalism, which is probably their you know most well-regarded album in November of 1966. 
uh, and that version of the animals lasts from 1966 to 1968. So there you go. So yeah, that's how that plays out. And that's kind of, yeah. And I think, I just find it interesting that everything was a cover because I guess I was used to songs being peppered in and this is, you know, 64, late 64, you know, you're a couple months away from 65 here. Um, You know, and, and the idea that these bands writing their own music was becoming more and more prominent. So I guess that was, you know, surprising to me, but I, that didn't take away from the enjoyment overall. I think it was just kind of an initial surprise, but yeah, this is just a straight up great blues record you know um and like you said i think that the keyboards really stand out i think the band mm-hmm. sounds really tight together um i thought that when you mentioned earlier baby let me take you home i recognized that song as the dylan i knew dylan's version baby let me follow mm-hmm. you down follow you home and so i but i was like well that's a different name of the title and um and sli- i think it, it's slightly different lyrics too um but it, yeah, it's, it, and I read a little bit about it and I was a little confused. I don't know if you shed any light on this, but it, essentially it was a cover for Dylan. Dylan didn't write it, but it was just different versions of the same song, which is mm-hmm. not really something that I've seen before. Usually, you know, if people cover, you know, the same song, it's the same, it's the same lyrics. It's relatively, you know, similar melodies, but this is, um, you know, it, but this is just a different name or a different arrangement or whatever. So I thought that well, that know- was kind of interesting. In the fifties and sixties, there were there were there wasn't a lot of original music being written by artists, and I think that one of the reasons the Beatles become the Beatles, right, is because they begin writing their own songs and they, you know, they they transition into that. And like we talked about before, the Monkees were still kind of going off of the model, you know, in nineteen sixty six, sixty seven, right? That was the model that existed all throughout the fifties. And in the 1960s, right, where there were professional songwriters, right? There were studio mm-hmm. musicians. You might be a musician, but you'd bring in these studio musicians. Your band would evolve. Professional songwriters wrote professional songs, kind of like how country music has operated for a very long time. Yeah. Um, and that was what you did because, you know, why it's hard enough to be an artist, right? You know, to write and then compose and then write your own songs. You know, certain people are meant to play and certain people are meant to write, right? And so it's not unusual, even with bands such as the Stones and, and the Beatles who ended up writing, and even the Kinks, you know, who ended up writing a ton of their own stuff, to see both them all cover the same songs because there's just songs that were considered to be staple songs and that audiences wanted to hear. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that's why you see Dylan overlap with the animals so much. That's why you see the same artists like Chuck Berry and little Fats Richard Domino. and Fats Domino. Yep. And there's you know, a John Lee hooker, you know, but it's just, but they, it's, but yeah. I find it interesting that I guess just that it, that there was just different, a different version of it, you know, mm-hmm. um, and just inspired by different writers and things like that. So but when um, you think about it, Dylan, Dylan, that continues to be a thing for him throughout the sixties. You know, we saw the birds covered him relentlessly. Yep. Jimi Hendrix covered him. So, uh, and even in the 70s, right? You know, we talked about Bruce Springsteen earlier, right? Mm-hmm. You know, because the night comes to mind, right? You know, a song that was written for someone else by Bruce Springsteen, in this case, Patti Smith. Right. Uh, so, so that's always existed. People having, I mean, Prince is another guy, right? Who wrote a ton of songs that he ended up not saying Manic Monday by the Bangles, you know, uh, sure. nothing compares to you, right? So, 
it's not altogether uncommon, but yeah, I, I think that maybe you're thinking there might be some more originals and the animals no, no. definitely had, had that way. They had yeah, that and, way. I, and I, I figured that, but I just didn't know how long it would take before they started doing that. So um, I thought the well, other the money's, thing that, yeah, the money's in live performances too, Matt. Yeah. And so if you're playing a bunch of your own shit and no one knows what your shit was right. in the early sixties, that was a, you know, a ticket to obscurity. I Absolutely. Think. No, that's no, very true. And um, I mean, I thought, Obviously, and another song that was kind of similar in that vein was "Talking About You," which is mm-hmm. parts of "Shout," right? That song yes. by the Isley, Isley Brothers, right? Which is just, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm like, oh, this is "Shout," but it's not "Shout." It's just parts of it in this song. Um, so I think that that's kind of an interesting thing that was going on. It's like let's take the framework of a song and change it up slightly, add something, take something away, but it's still it's its own thing. Um, actually, and I felt that that "Talking About You" and um, the next song around and around, they kind of mm-hmm. sounded like gospel songs. You know, I could see, uh, you know, some Southern Baptist, you know, church choir going nuts in a church, you know, th- th- not so much the lyrical content, but more about like the feel of the, mu- the music. Clapping well, that's and- Eric Burns. That's Eric Burns voice right there. And that's what stands out to me. But it's right? more than he- just his voice though. It's, it's the, cl- it's the clapping and it's the upbeat nature. And it just seems like I could see a group. Well, the organ too. Yeah, the organ right. Too. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Very true. Um, so, uh, no, I thought overall, I, I really enjoyed it. There wasn't, I think the only song on here that maybe I was a little bit bored with, I just thought that I'm mad again. I think it's the, the mm-hmm. penultimate track on the yep. album is <laughs> I like, I always like that word. Um, there you go. is, uh, it's, just, it's a blue song. It's more, it's more spoken. It's kind of one of those blue songs. That's not really sung. It's kind of just, you know, it's, 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 it's a much more spoken word kind of a song. And it just, it seems like it's too long. I think it's almost six minutes and it just seems you yeah. know, I, I feel like you could cut that down, but you know, I, I knew Memphis, Tennessee, the Chuck Berry song from before. Mm-hmm. I've always liked that. Um, well, there's two Chuck Berry songs on mm-hmm. the album. There's a John Lee Hooker one, a Fats Domino. Uh, it's like a greatest hits, right? A Ray Charles. Yeah. <laughs> you know? uh, basically, you know, all, all actually there's two Fats Domino songs. Sorry. All the different people that you would expect. Yeah. The heavy hitters um, for here. sure. Yep. But I mm-hmm. think if you wanted just to have someone's, you know, hey, what's, you know, give me a, a, a snapshot into some, you know, quintessential blues sounding music. This is this this pretty much this whole album is, is what that is, as, as far now, as I, I, I can, I'm concerned. Well, I would say there isn't a ton of variation right. between the tracks. So it does get a little samey at times. There are breaks of it, like blue feeling, right, is, is a different feel altogether early but for a lot of it it's the same template and especially a band that is dipping their toes into making a full-length album and i listened to this album a couple times matt i listened to it one time all the way through and then i listened to it a couple times in just bits and pieces and i will tell you in the bits and pieces i i enjoyed it even more yeah because what happens is you really appreciate the small nuances when you listen to it in bits and pieces um, as opposed to in album form. And that's how I would describe this. This is, this is as much a collection of singles or a live show, right? More so than it is an album with a concept to it. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, that, and that's not altogether unusual, period, in this day. Like with the Supremes, right? I got the same feeling that right. you could listen to this as just ripping off a bunch of singles or individual songs, but when taken as sort of a 12 to 15 track compilation, it does. It's not so much that it, it becomes worse. It just it loses a little bit of yes. something because it wasn't, in many ways, I think, designed to be an album in the way that we would come to know an album later. Right, and you can't fault it for that because it was just a, you know, first of all, a product of its time. But I also mm-hmm. think that's an interesting aspect of just albums in general because I think that I you know 
going back to talking about the birds younger than yesterday, I think one of the things that we talked about liking about it is that it's so varied, right? You know, Mm -hmm. if you don't like one type of song, you just wait, the next song will kick in and it'll change it up a bit. Um, So I think that that's something to be applauded in a lot of sense, in a lot of senses, but, um, and and something like this, that's kind of straight through, because I agree with you, it is kind of, it's samey. And that's an interesting point that you bring up that if you maybe put a couple of tracks on a, on a mix or something like that, or you listen to a little here, a little there, you'll get more out of it. Um, but I also think that there's certain people that if this is your thing, mm-hmm. you're going to like, you're, I think you're going to like it because I know that there's certain albums and certain artists that I like that I could see people saying, well, it all sounds the same. It's just one, it's good. But, but if you like that sound, if you like that structure or whatever it is about that, and you're okay listening to a lot of that, which I think that that's true for me with certain albums and certain sure. artists yep. that I think that this is still, this is going to really scratch that itch for you and you're 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 gonna love it you know so i i can appreciate that as well um i i think probably for me it is a little bit too samey but i also think that but i never really like i said other than you know that that song um what i'm I'm mad again i didn't Mm -hmm. really find myself going uh you know i'm I'm done with this you know what i mean so it still held my attention i think for that 40 minutes or whatever that it, it lasts and I would agree. I, I enjoyed this album thoroughly. Um, I, the sameness did not necessarily get in the way of me enjoying it because, as Matt said earlier, it is a tight album. Yeah, and they're you can good see musicians. Why musicians like it. Yeah, it's there isn't necessarily in the way that we've talked about in other albums or just even as we will talk about another album, standout performers or people that's like, oh, you know, here's where the sound comes from at this point. Uh, or, or, you know, things that, and, and this is where you can listen to this keyboardist who's transcendent, right? Or this drummer doing fills, like a Keith Moon or a John Bonham type character, right? You know, in this, everybody is a professional musician, almost to the point of like how those session players sound on some of the albums that we've covered. And Eric Burden's voice is raw yeah. and opens up and expressive. And unlike the Stones, who I've always said, I love because they, they do blues, but younger stones and a little bit later stones like let it bleed and sticky fingers and exile stones right when they're really sleazy that they're just a sleazy sound right in a good way yeah. early stones you know a little bit more polished but definitely taking it in an r&b direction so a little bit more like the kids smoking behind the 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 school compared to the beatles right this on the other hand takes the stones version and makes it darker and that's what I kind of liked about this. The vibe of this, the organ, the, the songwriting and the up and down. I mean, Eric Burden, say what you want about Mick Jagger. And I love the Stones. I love Mick Jagger. But Eric Burden's a considerably better blues singer in the traditional sense, right? In that church version, you know, <laughs> you know opened up version of singing than maybe a Mick Jagger mm. is. And I think that gives this a little bit of more polish, but also they managed to be polished, but with edge in it yeah. which is which is a rare thing that you don't see very often because you can be studio slick or or a little bit jagged but to be able to pull both off especially in 1964 yeah. right that's what really stayed with me on this one and you can see why musicians and um it, just really love this album uh because of walking that line yeah is what i would say yeah mm-hmm. no it was uh i i would recommend it and i think i, I did you look at their wikipedia page it's amazing. How many members? They're still around, I guess, right? Is it, are they still a, it's technically a band? I think they do, yeah. They, but they it's not any play, of the but, original guys, right. right? It's all these. Right. But the lineup, the, the former members, 
there must be 30 people on here. Like, <laughs> you know, but their last studio album was released in 1983. So I guess they just tour. Um, but I found that to be really interesting that it's technically still a band. Um, but you start to see that a lot with 60s bands, bands and also singing groups. If you, I, I haven't ever looked, but I could only imagine what the four tops version would be because there's been about yeah, five, just, 500 right. four tops right? right you know what i mean in different spots and i think that's just the nature of the beast right you know some people don't want to be a nostalgia act some people die early some people have falling outs because of songwriting credits right <laughs> so you know <laughs> as a result if you want to keep playing and you know it seems like for a lot of artists they uh there's always a period no matter how disillusioned they are that they go back and 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 do that reunion tour, right? It's it's rare that you see a, a group just say, yeah, no, thank you. Yeah. Um, in terms of reuniting. Um, but uh, so it must be tough because it, it's you probably have fond memories of these songs. And also there's, you know, you're, you're playing later in your life to people that have more disposable income uh, who enjoys your music, right? Heck so, yeah. Hey, I was, supposed to, I was supposed to go see uh, Poison and Motley Crue and, uh, you know, all those guys. In the, but then COVID happened. So they they, they took my money. So no, <laughs> I don't know whether to tell you that was a bad thing or whether to tell you that you dodged a bullet. So, yeah, uh, well, well, they're coming back next summer. So we'll, we'll, we could talk about it then when we're probably somewhere deep in the, I don't know, the beginning of the 80s, maybe. I don't think they're going to be anywhere near the top 100, but no, that's good. I, know, but there might be a so. bonus episode that you'll be able to introduce poison. A little hair in, metal. But, but, nah, never but we, can, we can save that for another time in another <laughs> place. But from what I'm gathering, Matt, uh, uh, easy, easy thumbs up and recommend for me. Would you say the same for yeah, you? I'd, yeah, I'd agree. I, I don't think that there's many people that, I mean, if you like rock and roll, I don't see how you aren't going to like this. I can see maybe some people maybe getting a little too bogged down in that sameness that you were talking about, um, or maybe wanting a little bit more, I don't know, uh, modern sounds, you know, that, that this, than this has, but, um, but overall, I think for most people, it's going to be, it's a pretty easy listen, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, um, and it's, it's and good. And they're do, really good. If you do need a lot of novel, novelty and you're worried about that sameness, listen to it in three track bursts and <laughs> right. you'll, you'll, you'll enjoy it a great deal. I, like like Matt said, I find it hard to believe there's going to be people who who wouldn't like that album. So yeah. good good choice, Dad. Good musical yeah, influence dad, to start your, with. Your so, dad has yeah. knows a little what's up, so that's good. So much more go. than well, my dad. I love my dad, but jeez, <laughs> God knows what we'd be talking about if it were. I don't even want to think about it. But anyway. we'll have a bonus episode on that one of oh, these days. So, yeah, nobody yeah. will listen. Well, now we're gonna veer off the road in an entirely different direction. And Matt, I will say that yeah. I was completely unfamiliar with the monks yeah. and made it a point to stay unfamiliar with the monks all the way up until you talking right now. So while <laughs> I listened to this album, I wanted to go in cold with no background because it is so rare for me to yeah. not at least have some cursory knowledge and not to pat myself on the back, but I was really excited. So I, much like the, the listeners, am really excited to see what's going on with this band and give and give my my thoughts on it so john, i'm gonna turn the reins over to you my friend john you know what time it is monk's time it's, it's black monk, monk time, time. Yeah. you're darn tootin it's monk time and that's i how blew it my starts. cue there man i had it set up for me and i blew it so, black <laughs> monk time yep. it's monk time yeah that's yeah. how the album starts essentially so the monks Wow. Um, so this is a band that uh, this album. And Black expect me to time. ask a thousand yeah. questions, Matt. So if you don't know the answer to it, yeah. we'll just throw it out to the listeners or, you know, It'll we're going to have a hell of a, 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 
a Matt's tidbits. A lot of later. stacks to clean later on. Yes, for sure. exactly. Yeah. So this album was released in um, March of 1966. And so this this band hmm, was okay. comprised of five American GIs who were stationed in Germany, Germany. They were all um, really? went, they were all in the army. Okay. And none of them. It didn't seem. I actually watched. That today. is very interesting. The German influence, and I'll get there later. Yes. But go ahead. Yep. So it was. It's. I. I. I watched a documentary on them today because I just. The more I've learned about them, the more fascinated I got. So I did find a, a documentary called "The Transatlantic Feedback," okay. um, and so I. I got more information from that, and that's something. If you. If you like this, or you're interested in all that, that's a. That's a mm -hmm. really good documentary. You can find it on. Um, it was on Amazon Prime Video. Okay. So, but yes, and so you said this was their only album. Album. They're only their only album, correct? Wow. Okay. So five. You have five American GIs, all of which essentially joined the army, not necessarily out of any sense of patriotism or wanting to, you know, kill the commies, because that's basically what that this time period, right? You're in the early '60s, and this is really Cold War, you know, Kennedy Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, era that they were in the army. That and they joined, right? That they that, joined. The album came out later. Okay, gotcha. right? Yeah. So, so they're in the army before they're really this the monks. They, but they joined because they just all wanted to get out of the states. They wanted something different. They wanted to tour, you know, hmm. the, you know, the world or see different parts of the world. They were all kind of, in some way, shape, or form, dissatisfied with where they were in the states. And then they just met each other as, you know, GIs in in Germany. So the band consisted of the two main guys were Gary Berger, who played the guitar and vocals, and okay. da and Dave Day, who was a rhythm guitarist, but. As their sound morphed, he ended up playing mainly the six-string electric banjo. Um, was his six-string electric banjo? Correct. Most banjos. What a, what a, most banjos. Electric and banjo, six-string and banjo. That there's more oxymorons I can keep up with. There. I know, I know, and it's yeah, it, it's because most banjos, I believe, are four strings. So right. This was a six-string electric banjo. Um, well, and the whole reason you go banjo, right, is not to go electric. Or to supplement the electric, correct? Not when you're the monks. Nope. Not when was, you're the monks, yeah, right? It's not the, it's not the normal banjo that you and I know. Um, so then the other three members were Larry Clark, who played the organ, Eddie Shaw, who was the bass player, and Roger Johnston, who was the drum player, uh, the okay. drummer, drummer, not drum player. Um, so they kind of all just met, you know, as, as um, GIs in Germany. They um, started playing together. They played some, um, you know, so, some different... And eventually they got out of the army and they eventually started playing in Germany. They stayed in Germany afterwards. They didn't want to go back to the States and they ended up playing these small clubs. And a lot of what they were playing was just music of the time. They did a lot of covers, even though that, you know, Dave Day and Gary Berger still were writing songs and, you know, kind of starting to write songs together. But they did a lot of, you know, kind of beat music. You know, some, they were covering the Stones. They were covering the Beatles. They were doing the Beach Boys. And they... Um, I'm sure they were listening to the animals too because... You know, with the organ and stuff, there aren't mm -hmm. and yeah, altogether. There, it's not uh, by any means an exact anything <laughs> on this album, but you could see that there might be some influence there. Yeah. So they 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 were basically just a regular, you know, cover rock band, right? But then one day, <laughs> there are two Germans that came, kind of almost like businessmen, that came in to see a show in 1965. Um, their names were Carl Remy and Walter Neiman. And okay. they had two vastly different personalities. So you had Carl was kind of this boisterous, crazy, you know, energetic, um, you know, extrovert. And Walter was more of a, you know, of a quieter guy, 
but they like both stereotypical German. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> right. More stereotypical German. Um, but they, you know, they saw these guys and they were looking on a project, you know, they, they approached the band after a show and said that, you know, we're working on this project and we're trying to create this band. And so, you know, these guys weren't finding it. They weren't making a ton of money, you know, and they were just, you know, they were open. So they're to basically anything, really. just a, a, a well-regarded cover band playing to German audiences and GI audiences. Is that a fair essentially? Essentially. Yes. And maybe throwing in some of their, I mean, they had, like I said, they had some songs that they were working on. um, And I think that maybe even some of them were the ones that ended up on this album, but they were definitely different versions of it because these guys, so they were originally called um, the, uh, what was the original band name? They weren't the monks originally. Um, Okay. I have to give me a second. I'll I'll, I'll figure that out. But, oh, the Torques, and that was named after a, oh. um, a a song by a band called the Fireballs, which was kind of okay. an instrumental, almost like a surf surf band, I believe, surf kind of surf music uh, surf song. And but these guys kind of came in and said they had this vision of the monks, right? So they they really and I got to just describe. I got to give you some descriptions of what the sound is because there's so many different ways to describe it. But I, I picked up on a lot of things watching the documentary. So they really wanted this to well, be. Well, can a, I? Yeah, go ahead. Before other people define it, I I want to have the opportunity to define it myself, and it doesn't have to be now. But I I almost don't want to be led in the direction of how other people describe. Well, John, it. how would you define was, this? Because I have it all written down here, the different adjectives. How would you describe? I, I almost heard? have to just plow in because, like I said, I came in with no knowledge of this, and as I'm listening to it, my brain is a referential brain to begin with. So mm-hmm. uh, while I'm listening to it and gathering stuff, my first listen is often, what does this sound like? What's the background? And uh, it is, uh, at times, it's Krautrock, like Kraftwerk and uh, audiences in that genre, beca- Faust, right? You know, yep. it's, it very much sounds like Kraftwerk, like complex, discordant, uh, but but also in, in some ways very precise. Um, and so that's why when you said they're German GIs, I'm like, wow, okay, interesting, because one of the first things that came to mind to me was that Krautrock sound. Yes. You know, at, at times you hear stuff that would later, it would come, like, for example, um, you know, the, the song London, uh, London's Burning by The Clash, right? There is a song on this album uh, track number four um, that that is literally the lead-in to that song. So I, I, to the point where um, hig, higgledy piggledy, right? Is yeah. is a, a, at the beginning? It's you know London's burning, and and you hear it exactly the same chord structure, right? right. Mm-hmm. So it has, and it also sounds not only like that first wave of punk, but also at times I was like, God, the, the only thing I compare this to is like the first time I heard the Dead Kennedys. In, in the sense that it's hmm. it's entertaining, but it's that like, um, I guess the term would be like proto-punk uh, yep. type sound. Um, so there's like kraut rock, there's proto-punk. It, it's a throwback to the, with the organ and stuff like the animals. That's why it's interesting we paired them together. At times they get, they get very tuneful and structured and then they fly off the chart. Uh, and, I, and there's specific songs I'll talk about. I won't get into it now, mm-hmm. but- I'm fascinated to hear what other people think because they, they're one of the few bands I could not put a thumb on, but I could say, wow, like clearly people were listening to this band because you hear elements of this band yeah. all over the place, and, in, especially the 70s. 
and you hit a lot of the terms, right? So okay. Kraut, Kraut Rock. And I Rock. promise I didn't, I did. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. you can't miss the Kraut Rock. I mean, so it's, they were deaf and they were influential on the dead Kennedys listed as one of really? the, you know, one okay. of the big influenced heavily by, you know, who else it, listed that they were influenced by the, by these guys was the Beastie Boys, um, which huh. I found interesting as well. But um, yeah, but, but, and, and well, I could there was see another, that though, because they, there were the Beastie Boys at the big, Right after they were you know, License to Ill. Well, they were pumped in, but they were also right after License to Ill and before Ill Communication. They have a lot of stuff that's very avant-garde, and that what this album can be is avant-garde at times. That's for another sure. term. Yep. You th- is it really? Yes. It I is. promise you're, I didn't do my research. You're hitting Maybe all I... this. Well, you know, you you know okay. music, so you yeah, you're hitting on the right things here. So what what has been described as is gritty, rhythmically oriented music with high rhythm, high energy. Um, mm-hmm. One of the members yeah. of the band basically said everybody was contributing towards the rhythm. So if you yes. were if you were playing something that wasn't contributing towards the rhythm, it wasn't part of the monks. But sound. At no at no point would I have identified a banjo as being in this. Like yeah. I'm trying to think of any of the songs and see where there would be a callback to a. So my only thought can be: Does the electric six string banjo even sound like a banjo? It, you know, because I didn't a- hear it in a very slight sense because what it's really doing it's 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 become it's part of the rhythm obviously with everything else um but it's it's kind of a muted sound it's not like he's not he's play he's strumming hard on it but then he's then he's um hammering down on the neck so he's not letting the the notes and the chords ring out it's like you know and it's a like a metallic sound to it as well um so you can definitely hear it and if you watch any i I, if john if you didn't do any research i encourage you or anybody else you can watch these guys play on youtube videos and stuff at the time and it's just going to trust me fascinating to watch these guys play and so when you see that you'll be able to see um you know day play the um uh play the electric Ba- uh, banjo so and is you he can- hammering you said he's hammering down on it like is it sort of like how a punk band like the way they play just that furious strumming or- yeah I mean, I mean it's i guess so because yeah and it's just go it's just going right in line with the room it's you know just very fast and he's stomping his feet and uh it's it's well for not- like modern audiences you think of like yeah. the way billy joe from billy joe armstrong from green day plays right like hammering on and you know for classics you know joe strummer who obviously influenced them when you watch them play, they, they play, they attack the instrument, right? Yeah. Is that, is that kind of what it looks like? Or I, I would think so. I mean, he's okay. not, I mean, he's moving a good portion of his arm. He's not just strumming, you know, with just like a little bit of his wrist. Like he's, he's moving his whole arm up and down and going, you know, he's going at it. Right. Windmilling um, like Townsend style. Not quite windmilling. Okay. I don't think he was quite there yet, but uh, okay. so some other ways of describing this um, okay. was that um, it was um, distorted, loud, non-melodic, Few symbols, yeah. lots of tom tom drums. So the drums were very much yeah. a lot of lot of tom toms. Um, I mean, it could be it could be. It's not as much of a callback to noise rock as some of the other stuff, you know, later would be, and certainly like kraut rock would be in some ways. Yeah, but I could see how there's even elements of that. Um, there isn't the feedback and stuff as much, but the 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 just like you said, the discordant nature of it is sort of like that it's a challenge to listen to because we want it to be a challenge to listen to. It's yeah. And I, I don't think, I mean, even the first time I heard it, I was kind of like very intrigued, but I wasn't sure if I liked it. Um, Oh, I did. I immediately liked it. Really right away. Yeah. So, um, 
but I, th- I yeah, it's not something for the faint of heart, right? It's, 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 it's definitely hits you and, and you're like, this is 1966. And in some ways it sounds oh, like 1966. Yeah, and in no, other no, ways, it's I like, think it sounds like 1976 is much more. Cause it's, it's like, it's 10 years early yeah. with what this sounds like. Cause like I said, it, you could have placed this in the kraut rock era and when punk was beginning and this album would have made sense in 1966. This album doesn't make any sense, um, which is why I'm shocked. I don't know anything about this because yes. even obscure bands that would come later, right? You, you'd learn more about, you know, like whether it be, I, I hate to keep going up, but like, you know, bands like suicide and stuff who their, their reputations far exceed, you know, what they sold or stuff at the time, you know, they still drive your consciousness, but this band somehow didn't. And so, man, talk about like an unexpected gift that that then influenced a hell of a lot. While I'm not a huge Krautrock enthusiast, uh, a lot of the other stuff that clearly was there um, is stuff that I ended up loving. And and yeah, it's funny that the Dead Kennedys said it because I absolutely see it because I had the same reaction to it that I did the first time I heard the Dead Kennedys when I was like 12 years old, right? It was like this, I don't know what this is, but I want to hear more (laughs) Well, and I found it interesting, too, that they when they went into the studio. So a lot of this, again, was driven by those two Germans, right, that Carl and uh, Walter that, mm-hmm. you know, said that this is kind of in the electric banjo. That was their idea. These were relatively and it's kind of funny because you wouldn't think this when you listen to the music, but they were relatively just normal dudes. Right. They were just regular guys like playing well, music. But were they, but they were, were they disaffected because they, yes the lyrics, no. right. the lyrics are very charged uh and i i was able to make out a lot of them early but then the second time i listened to it i had them up and the lyrics are very straightforward in the way i I keep talking about the dead kennedys but that's kind of what it's like it's got the the sneer of like a replacements like a disaffectedness of the replacements with the the directness in terms of how the words are said of like uh dead kennedys Mm -hmm. and and I, i actually the song shut up like sounds both in words and how it sounds lyrically like a domestic violence like episode. <laughs> yeah it really does yeah, like, you're you're, right. you're, yeah. you're reading the lyrics and then you're hearing it and it's like this is the musical equivalent of like domestic violence violence yeah uh, yeah 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 for sure but they but i think i obviously some of the ideas were there i know that one of the band members um you know mentioned eddie shaw the bass player said that he he was not really particularly fond of the, you know, um, the anti-Vietnam stuff because that comes right okay. off the bat, right? You start this, oh yeah, it's monk time, and he's he's like, and why we got to, and like the third thing he says is, why do we have to kill all those kids in Vietnam, right? Well, and it's spoken word, and so yeah. you're thinking, okay, it's gonna, and then shut up goes a totally different direction and is equally as explicit about just hating a partner. <laughs> There's a lot of hate. There's a lot of hate yeah. in this album. Um, so, but they. Including a song called I Hate, I hate you, you, which is yeah. about what you expect it's about. Yeah. Do you know why I hate you? Because you make me hate you. Like, that's that's right. the reason exactly. why. Exactly. Yeah. You know? um, so, it's like nihilistic, which yeah. is a lot of the lyrics have a like nihilistic component. Yeah. No, for sure. And they, but, 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 but a, a lot of this was just crafted by those two managers. They had this vision and they encouraged them for a more, much more minimal, minimalist sound. So what they did was they took their songs and they worked on deconstructing them. So they wanted to narrow it down so that they weren't, you know, playing as many chords. They wanted to narrow down the, the, the amount of words that they were using and they wanted it just to be repetitive. So let's, let's cut down on the number of words, but let's just keep repeating the same things over and over again. So that was very, that was very um, calculated 
And, you know, they just worked out very simple beats and progressions and they purposefully, they said they purposefully worked for tension. And that was, I thought yeah. a really good way of describing it because that, that's what it is. This is not a smooth laid back, uh, you know, type of sound. This, this kind of is, is jarring. Um, and it's, and it's, as a result, they were not well received, <laughs> of course, even in Germany, they, they, they would said they would go play these shows after they released their album. And they were like knowing going into their performances that they were going to be mostly hated. And they got to the point where they hated playing because they were just like, everybody's just going to hate us. So like, let's just, let's just do this and huh. get out of here and do the next show, you know? So it was very chore like at that point for them. Well, the, the overlap between what sort of the ethos of Krautrock was later is very strong there because I, and we'll we'll talk plenty because it's going to show up in the 70s but uh it, it my understanding of of that rock music in the 70s and in, in germany and the kraut rock ethos is sort of like breaking away from like american structures right most notably all of the r&b stuff right and kind of creating your own version of it and you know more more mothers of invention velvet underground right than influenced by like 50s blues and you know, traditional African-American rock, right? And that's where kraut rock comes in. So it's difficult to listen to at times, right? Yes, and, and, yes. And, and sort of draws off of certain types of jazz, which are experimental as yeah. well. Oh, for and, sure. And, but once again, this is a band that seems like it should have ended up there in, in, <laughs> in that era of kraut rock, not yeah. in 1966, because th those guys were basically going off of the idea of what those later, which is why the second you said that, I said, oh, there is a German connection because yep. I said, uh, there has to be because this is this it seems like it should be a brother and sister of it but it seems like it's even a a, a forerunner you yeah. know i'd be fascinated to see if if those bands well velvet this. underground was listed as well that that's you know kind of it's one of these things where you know well, but they were contemporaries things. of velvet underground so they wouldn't have been influenced by them right because if yeah, this I was guess 66 yeah Around the same time. Well, there was also something that I read that I, I'm like, I don't know. There's been several music critics who have credited Berger with creating feedback uh, in records. Okay. And I'm like, well, that's, I always I don't thought know that about was the that. Beatles because, you know, in 64, late 64, the Beatles, you know, released I Feel Fine, you know, um, and that starts with feedback. So I don't know well, about that. Was... I mean, they certainly probably used more distortion, certainly, than, than a lot of other, you know, acts at the time. But, um, you know, but the other thing, too, is I thought was interesting, and, and I didn't realize this when I listened to it, but when I when I read it, I said, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the, the background vocals were were mm -hmm. were supposed to be reminiscent of chanting monks almost, you know, like that was part of the, you know, hmm. part of the sound. So if you go back and listen, you know, um, I hate you is a great example, right? The background, you know, I hate you, baby. And then they're like, but call me. And it's a very... Right. It's like a chanty kind of thing. And that's, we haven't even talked about the image, John, because in addition to shocking people musically, this was very shocking with their image because not only okay. did these guys craft their, their sound or really push them in that direction, that minimalist, you know, rhythmic direction, but they wanted them to be actual monks, right? So they dressed them up in these black robes. They wore rope <laughs> ties around their necks. So they had these ties that were ropes and then they cap it all off. Their hairstyle um, was reminiscent of a monk. So they had, they grew their hair long, kind of like mop top beetle haircuts. And then they shaved the tops of their heads like Catholic monks or, or Gregorian monks or whatever. So that they had these really bizarre haircuts. Um, and people felt that this image was blasphemous. 
and didn't take <laughs> to, you know, and, and so and in addition to that, so then the, the manager. So they were this, performance artists as well. It sounds like. Yeah. And the managers not only wanted them to have this perform persona on stage, but they also wanted them to carry that with them in their regular ordinary lives. And so they provided the band with rules, the, the rules of being a monk. And they're just ridiculous. It's so funny. It's, it's, it's very straightforward in a very German way. So in public, you always have to be a monk is one of the rules, right? You, <laughs> you, which, which means you're dressed black. You have your hair short, always, so here's always move like a monk, which is hard, sexy, strong, exciting, full speed, <laughs> dangerous, not just on stage, but on the street. And I finally, to never be a torquay. Yes, I, I just apologize to our German listeners, but can you not hear a German guy speaking in English? Like just saying, you know, always be a monk, you know, strong, sexy, vibrant, you know what I mean? Like kind of that whole idea. And it's just funny, like you've got these American GIs who are looking to kind of like buck the routine of structure, it sounds like. And here they end up with this whole lifestyle choice that in its own way is equally as structured in a different right. way than the military in their art. Yeah. And they just, they wanted them to be like the opposite of what was good. They wanted to be, they wanted to have a mysterious aura and be nonconformist and just be the op, like very little melody. You know, I know last week I was talking about, you know, how the MC5 was a little bit of a hard listen to me because I couldn't find any melody. There's not much more melody here, um, no. but I found this, the more I listened to it, I, I was grooving a little bit. Like there, there is some melody and the rhythm is just so good. And it's just, it's just, it got to the point where it just, you know, for certain well, songs, it, it got infectious for me. And I think, well, and there's a lot of rhythm. I wouldn't say there's a lot of melody and no, that's, no, no, there's very, there's yeah. a couple of things here and there. And I, th I was saying that last week, like, I don't need a ton of melody. I don't need this like lush harmonies and things. And that's, what's funny too, because they were covering before they were the monks, they were covering the beach boys, right. And the Beatles and, <laughs> and this stuff that's totally like, and then they ended up going in the complete opposite direction of that type of right. sound. Um, so, uh, but no, the more I listened to this, the more I liked it. I think that there's, there's not much on, there's a four track. I think when it goes from, I hate you. Oh, come. Oh, 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 how, um, what is it? Oh, how do you do? Oh, how, how, how to do now? How to do now. Yep. Complication, which I thought, I was hearing the Pixies in that, man. That sounded like a Frank Black kind of a, you know, Pixies type uh, type song. Um, I mean, there's we can keep going. And yeah. there's there's Pixies Husker Do elements to this in there as well. That complicated listen. I I, I heard bits and pieces of all kinds of stuff. Yeah. That you could basically do like a, <laughs> at the risk of this sounding like one of those obnoxious pitchfork reviews. You know what I mean? You can go in a thousand different directions if you've, been exposed to a lot of different stuff and that's what fascinated me about this well let album. me ask you this because there was another part of the documentary where they had the producer of the album went to go see a show before they recorded and he was just he was this is too loud this is just noise i don't know how we're going to record this and then he, he had to leave the club he was too much for him so he goes outside and being outside with the the, the noise level down being a little bit more muffled he he heard what they were doing better and he said okay well this is how i can how i can record them and he mentioned in the documentary that he's like this wasn't a term then he goes but this was early heavy metal and later on somebody also described them as being early um like techno music um which definitely I was... can see the second in terms of certain types of uh, i wouldn't necessarily say techno as much as i'd say electronic mm -hmm. music um, even though this isn't electronic, it's that same ethos of just a lot of sound coming at you discordantly, but with that 
repetitiveness that that marks sort of right you know the, especially the like 90s techno uh, or, or, or uh, electronic i'd say i don't hear metal in this yeah i, I really i really don't i i think this it, you know i don't want to give it every i think it's a lot more beholden <laughs> to that kraut rock slash elements of of punk rock especially the punk rock that is played to not be melodic and and like we said dead kennedys comes to mind a little bit of minor threat stuff like that uh, metal on the other hand for the most part i feel like always ties together a lot nicer um even well, i think that's harsh probably, metal I think, yeah i think he's saying that more it's just it's it's like at the heavier sound of it right that was just not um you know they were using a lot of um equipment that you know amplified things to a much higher degree i mean than it's other to bands. me it's loud but not heavy right if that makes sense yeah yeah, and I, I can see that too, but I, I thought that was interesting. I was like, geez, we're going all over the place with the crediting here. But I just think it's cool because this is a band, and one of the reasons that you said you never heard of them, I mean, the album was not released in the U.S. Okay. And the initial print, um, there was concern that the lyrical content was too, uh, you know, uh, troublesome for U.S. Well, audiences. Yeah. You know? yeah, especially track one, I'm sure most <laughs> a lot of people wouldn't even have got past that. Yeah, So and so they – Essentially, the breakup of the band, I, I, th- I think that's interesting, too, because the 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 Carl, the main the, one of the, the managers ended up having he had a drinking problem and he was very mercurial in his personality. And he and the you other don't say manager, with that business plan. Yeah. Well, he and the other manager, Walter, they began to have a falling out. So Carl leaves. And so it leaves the more, you know, the modest, you know, quiet uh, guy in the background and he kind of just fades out. And so they were really kind of instrumental because when when the band did feel like, what are we doing? Because they were they took on these personas because they were asked to, not because they really felt like this is who we right. are. So they kind of felt ridiculous. <laughs> and <laughs> and so every time that they kind of got down, the managers would come in and they would say all the right things. And then they would leave and they'd be like, we're monks. Now we let's go back and be the monks, you know. And so with that partnership dis- disbanded that was gone. Right. And so mm-hmm. they were finally going to be, they toured in Europe. They never played, they never played the U S until um, a reunion show in 2000. They played a show in New York, huh. in two, 32 years after they broke up because wow. um, they ended up breaking up. They were supposed to tour in Asia and, and in Vietnam. And right when they were at the airport, they received a, a card from the drummer, um, uh, Johnston, uh, and he basically said, "I can't take this anymore. I quit." So he, okay, yeah. and then they were like, "All right, we're done." Right. So then that was it. They didn't really, and I think that they kind of, you know, that was probably going to be coming anyway at a certain point, not too far down the road. But, um, but yeah, so that was it. Was one album they did do a couple of other songs, you know, because the record company came back and said, "You guys, this is not selling. This is too harsh. You need to, you need to do something a little poppier." And which they did. So if you listen beyond, John, I don't know if you listen to the bonus stuff, but some of those tracks are on the bonus uh, feature of the um, of the Spotify uh, version, and it's just it just sounds totally different, and it's not. Good, I did, right? yeah, yeah, I did, and it's, it was not it was not nearly as compelling yeah. as the. It, it's you could tell it was designed. I wasn't aware that it was to be more accessible, but I thought that it was just discarded stuff as they were trying to figure out their ethos a little bit, but. It, it was, makes sense. It would be the other end. As it was well. the record company saying, Hey guys, yeah. clean this up, you know? So, um, so yeah, so they, they broke up and, you know, and it's one of those things that it just it, over 
decades, it started to grow a little bit more in popularity. People started, you know, they, they did start re-releasing. Um, well, because you know, this album, and, 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 this and album was re-recorded by about 150 different bands in like little increments. Yes. So that's, yeah. that's why it starts to come back. I'm sure. Because well, like I said, it's, it's everything and nothing at the same time. Yeah. So, um, but they did in terms do, of influences. Yeah, yeah, but they did do a show in 2000, and they did they did continue to tour a little bit. In can the you 2000s. can you imagine how hipsterish that show must have been oh in 2000 God. in New York? It must have been just a tremendous. Audience. Well, they've got footage of it. They've they they, they they and they interview like they interviewed a couple of um, artists that I like John Spencer from the John Spencer Blues, mm-hmm. like some artists like that that are kind of like you might have heard of, but aren't like you know huge artists that come to mind. Um, but yeah, so they they were able to continue to play a little bit, um, but you know eventually fizzled out. I got a kick out of this too that the main guy Berg Berger uh, eventually became uh, Gary Berger eventually became the mayor mayor <laughs> of a town <laughs> called Turtle River in Minnesota. Turtle and, River, Minnesota. And okay, two thousand six and until his death in twenty fourteen from pancreatic cancer. So. Um, yeah, three of the guys are actually have passed away, but it's it's just a fascinating story. And it's one of those things that the more you learn, the more you're going, this this is real. Like this was an actual real thing. Um, well, I think you you've locked in in the story, which is compelling. But I, the, the, the takeaway for me on this yeah. is what this album sounds like. Yeah. This was a fascinating listen. And it's if you like avant garde music or 70s kraut rock or even punk uh, you're you're gonna like this album and it's gonna be like a a nice gift under the proverbial christmas tree for you when you're not expecting it because wow it was really good the story is fascinating in its own right but 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 by itself if this album wasn't interesting it would have been sort of an interesting novelty right well there's but, every, but, everything about these this is interesting to me you know it's just like it's the whole it's the whole thing um did you did you have any uh, were there any standout tracks for you John in particular or I I liked even... I, I liked quite a few songs yeah. on the album um and and the interesting thing too is I liked quite a lot of, it's almost the opposite of what we just talked about with the animals in mm-hmm. that it was not samey at all in terms of as you progress through it you know it, it's it's you know, once you thought you had a handle on it you you realized quickly you had absolutely no handle on it what's, <laughs> whatsoever you know what I mean and that's why it was like holy cow, like, how am I going to talk about this on the podcast? Because it, I, I love the song Complication. Yeah. It was probably my favorite song on that it. That was the single. It, what can... was it? Okay, gotcha. Okay. It's, <laughs> I, I, I would not have guessed because what the hell is a single yeah, on this exactly. album? You know what I mean? So that was, that's not some great insight so much as I just like, I, uh, and can you imagine that even being released as a single? I, I just well, can't it didn't do well. <laughs> well, it's like, you know, like you think Frank Zappa and so, that stuff wasn't charting, you know what I mean? And yeah. this stuff stranger than even that was, um, shut up was, was excellent. Uh, I, I liked boys are boys and girls are choice, which almost had sort of like a, like a, you know, kind of, you know, what the Jesus and Mary chain and like Ravenettes did later, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That sounds, it, it, there's a little of that going. So that's right up my alley. I like that. Higgledy Piggledy was a really interesting song, even though there weren't a lot of lyrics on it. Even later on when I liked Drunken Maria it was short, but, but was it a totally different veer? So I could say more about what I liked than, than what didn't what stand didn't out. Like. And there weren't any tracks I didn't hate because everything was interesting. I thought Blast Off was a little bit 
much with all the noise stuff going in the back. Like I, I was, I was having trouble because that wasn't as much. Yeah, um, but if you think of it as like as every track, they're doing all this crazy shit. It's okay. If that's another one where they're doing this crazy. It's shit, a different you know type I mean? of crazy. Yeah, it's different yeah. type of crazy. It just it didn't resonate with me as much. And by that um, point in eleven, I'm just expecting crazy shit at that yeah. point. You know what I mean? So basically, you feed me just about anything, and I'm like, okay, what's next? Because I knew it wasn't gonna be what came. Well, in the, the lyrics, before. the lyrics make me laugh too. Like, that's my girl is great. Like he spends the whole time going, Hey, that's, that's, is that your girl over there? What a great, she's a great girl. You're so lucky. She's beautiful. You're going to, and then later on at the end of the show, he's like, wait a minute, that's my girl. You can't right. have my girl. <laughs> like, right. <and laughs> I just, I laugh when I hear some of the stuff because it's just, and the guy's voice is great. You know, I love well, it's that very stories. literal. It's that very literal stuff that you'd find in later punk music with the edge, but literal, but also the literal of like blues you know where it's like like we talked about with robert johnson you know what i mean where the narrative was straightforward and you knew exactly what was there there was a little twist and a little tongue-in-cheek uh and it, it sort of spoke to your like basest emotions or, or narratives right and there's a little bit of that going on with the lyrics as well yeah. i know i normally quote the lyrics i i don't have it in front of me right <laughs> now but you know maybe when we clean the sacks i'll i'll pull out like two or three of my favorites yeah, no, I think, um, like I said, I think there was a four, you know, through from, you know, I hate you through, uh, we do, we do. I, I really mm -hmm. love those four tracks, but yeah, I liked all of it, you know, and the, and it's one of those things that the more I listened to it, the more I liked, I mean, I, I knew some of the songs I had heard this album before, but I never really listened to it, um, in earnest, like I did in preparation for this, but I, when I saw it on the list and I think it's like, yeah, it's like ranked 110. So it's another one of those albums that just missed our, our countdown. Um, but I was much like when I wanted to do Sweetheart of the Rodeo, I knew there was enough interesting stuff with the sound and with the band that I wanted to, you know, kind of bring this up. And I was, I was very pleased that you knew nothing about it. So I was like, oh man, that's even better. You know, that John, well, and, will be and I'll end with this as a music choice. It's fascinating you picked this because this is much more of a John, a John <laughs> yes. pick than a Matt pick. So, yeah, that's yeah. why I thought you might have known something about it. But yeah, this is one of those things that not a lot of people know about. And I think that's when you hear it, you're like, what the heck? You know, so it's a, it's certainly a band that, um, you know, they, they, they were around for just a couple of years, had one album, and then they went and led regular lives. You know, they, they didn't really do a whole lot of music afterwards. And, um, but they were able to kind of come back together, do some reunion shows and things like that. So that was kind of good. But, uh, um, and take away from this is listen to this album. And I think we're going to try to yeah. get Josh to maybe add some sound for both of these albums tonight compared to our normal bonus. Oh, that's right. He could probably albums. do that. Yeah. And I was going to say, I think this one, unlike some of the other more acoustic versions of what we're trying to do, this one's going to benefit from some sound. So I think we'll, we'll hold this one back so you can hear what the monks sound like. Uh, and for that matter, the animals, so you can get a, a little feel for the dark ethos that I was referencing as well. So any last thoughts, Matt, before we uh, officially close the attic door for this I, run of shows? I would just say, I will give this a thumbs up, but I, I definitely know there's going to be a bunch of people that wouldn't, would hate this. You know, this is, this is not, this is not for everybody. I don't think um, it's, it's very I think harsh. You know our, I think you already know if yeah. you're going to like this album or not. And so the more, complicated you like your music the more you're going to like it the more you can deal with a cacophony of sound or non-traditional rhythm structures um this, you know some people are, are saying all right get me to it for other folks it's like oof, yeah. i don't know but within the first three tracks you'll know oh, if for you're sure. in for or not yeah oh for sure all right well i think uh that'll that'll be the end of this uh cleaning the attic the third of three shows the next time uh you'll be 
hearing from us, uh, Josh will be back on board with us uh, returning from vacation because I think we're going to try to sneak this one in at some point. Uh, we look forward to having him back. But it's been fun, man, doing doing twofers right here. What are your as a last thought? What are your thoughts on us doing a two man show? As much as we miss Josh, uh, change can be good sometimes, right? Yeah. Well, I think yeah, we certainly miss Josh, but I think it's cool to I, I, I liked being able to pick records you know um i like both of it right i like being told what to listen to and because that just gets me out of my comfort zone but i also like you know being able to say all right well let's mix it up a little bit and, and pick something that you, we, we weren't going to cover and for different reasons you know and i think the six ones that we came up with was anything the same i mean were they they were all nope. pretty different weren't they in their own ways i think so and uh you know i think that this is going to be something that we're going to try to you know, if we don't do it again for the '60s, I think throughout each run of decades, Matt, we should we should do a couple of these. We're doing to, it for sure. Yeah, to find some stuff. I think it's a worthwhile endeavor. So, uh, so yeah. So I think that'll that'll end it for this week. Uh, just a quick shout out once again. We now have a Twitter account. It is at combing the at combing the, and we are social have a social media presence that we've joked about for so many weeks. We have it right there. Uh, and then we are, as always, available on these seven platforms. This week, we're officially on Spotify as well. So we, uh, we welcome you to join us at Spotify as well, Combing the Stacks. You can email us at combingthestacks at gmail.com with questions, concerns, factoids that we missed, or just general commentary. So for Matt, this is John. Have a wonderful week and talk to you soon in podcast land. It's been our pleasure to have hosted you for another episode of Combing the Stacks, but the time has come for us to turn off the lights and send you home with a fond farewell. Before you leave, remember that new episodes are available every Thursday on a variety of streaming platforms, including Anchor, Apple, Google, Spotify, Overcast, and Pocket Casts. You can email with questions, comments, or general feedback at combingthestacks at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at combing the we'd also like to give a shout out to defy the mall who performs our theme song coasting as well as red bellows who are creating the ambiance you're currently experiencing by way of their track phonetic have a great night